Uh, let's open in prayer as we get ready to begin. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and you care for us. We thank you that you gave us your word so that we can learn what it is you want us to learn and, and you teach us from it. Lord, we thank you for each person that's here and, and that you are guide and lead. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read real quick in, in Micah, and then we're going to go to Luke chapter 2. So if you want to just go to Luke 2, that's fine. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall the come forth unto me that which is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until that time which he shall prevail, hath brought forth, and the remnant of his brethren shall call, shall return unto the children of Israel. All right, and Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judah, unto the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Just looking at this, we see a problem was developed because Micah said that the baby was going to be born in Bethlehem, and Mary and Joseph live in Galilee. Now, Galilee is only about 70 miles if you went straight line, probably closer to 120, 130 miles away the Jews would. And why would it take so much further? Between Galilee and Bethlehem was this little providence called Samaria. And Sumerians were hated by the Jews. Whenever they would go to Jerusalem from the north part of Israel, they would go all the way out to the Mediterranean, down and all the way across, or they would go all the way to the Jordan River and go down, which added some 50 to 60 miles, depending on what route they go. And Mary is pregnant, nine months pregnant, living in Nazareth, and the baby's to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I'm not sure that she realizes that the baby's supposed to be born in Bethlehem or not, but God is going to make sure they get to Bethlehem. Now, can you imagine this trip? Even in our day, a woman nine months pregnant, traveling by car, is not going to enjoy a 70 to 120 mile trip. It can be made somewhat comfortable. We can recline our seats back, whatnot, but it's still a long trip, an hour to two hours in a car. Now let's go back to Mary's time. Mary and Joseph are poor. How do we know they're poor? Well, we've talked about this. The gift they gave at Jesus's uh, celebration at eighth day was two turtle doves. All right, that was the poor person's gift. You were supposed to give a sheep. And if you were too poor to give the sheep, they allowed you to give the two turtle doves. So they are a poor family. 
They're getting ready to start a trip of 70. I'm sure Joseph didn't go through Samaria, even though he had a pregnant wife. He probably took the 90 to 120 mile trip. She's pregnant. They're poor. Now, all the pictures we see on the on nativity scenes and everything show us show us her riding a donkey. I don't believe they were rich enough to have a donkey. <laughs> okay. Uh, plus, donkeys are really rough way to travel. Uh, she was from a day and age when people would get, be able to work right up until delivery time anyway, so she might have walked most of this. Joseph, being a carpenter or builder, may have built some kind of wagon of some sort that he might have pulled, which is probably a very feasible thought. And you figure a 70 to a 90 mile trip by caravan would have taken four to six days. Now, we kind of look at that like, how long? Well, if you're walking, 20 miles is a pretty good day of walking, especially if you're carrying your tent and your food and your supplies and all of that. Probably most caravans only went 10 to 15 miles because by the time you set up camp, you had to set up camp when it was still daylight and you had to break camp early in the morning and you still had to have breakfast and break camp. So 15 miles was a, 10 to 15 miles was a good distance. So a 90 mile trip is going to be somewhere between four days to nine days of travel. You know, and we think about this, she's pregnant. It's going to be a tough walk for her, a tough trip for her. And it's possible, I, I've said this before, somebody might have loaned them a donkey or something for her to make this trip on, but that would have been, you know, from Bethlehem, they're going to go to Egypt because the angels are, tell them to get out of there because Herod's getting ready to kill, that, kill all the babies in that town. Uh, so as they borrowed this donkey, that was a long-term, <laughs> long-term loan. Uh, but most likely she walked and Andor was in a cart. But you know, what I'm really looking at in this story though is what will God do to make sure that what he wants to happen happens? You know, we figure this, Mary and Joseph had no intention of going to Bethlehem. Whether they knew that this baby was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, I don't know. They knew the Messiah was to be born in, in Bethlehem and I'm not sure that Mary ever understood that the, the baby was the Messiah. Uh, even when he died on the cross and, and started and preaching before that. I'm not even sure she understood really who he was up on that point. Because remember, Mary and, and Jesus' brothers and sisters came to get him thinking he was crazy. If you remember the story, they went up, they went to Simon's house, and they go, uh, Jesus, your mother and your brother, brothers and your sisters are here uh, to take you away. You know, they thought he was crazy. They, they really thought this, he's gone nuts. He thinks he's, he thinks he's God. He's preaching this. He's making us look bad with his preaching, uh, what's going on with him. So I don't even know if she understood until after the resurrection really what had happened. She knew this child was important. This was God's, God's child. She knew that. She knew he was special. But I don't know if she really fully understood how special he was. You know, and I'm, we're not trying to belittle Mary at all, but you know, I don't know... You know, how many times do we learn things about God and we don't really understand what he's teaching us until years after the fact. We get, get done after everything, after God's used us in some great way, we get to the end and going, oh, is that what you meant, God, you were going to do or you were going to do this? And I think Mary was in that same boat. She understood this was a special, special child. 
She knew there was no man involved in this. She knew that God had given birth to this child. She knew that this child would be special. And even if she was expecting a Messiah, she wasn't expecting somebody to act like a crazy man, preach for four years, get put on a cross, and die, and die on a cross. Because if she was expecting a Messiah, she was going, okay, I've given birth to the, to the king, and they're going to get rid of Rome, and they're going to make Israel what Israel has been promised to be, the center of everything. And that's still coming. The millennial kingdom, Israel, will be the center of all commerce. Everything will be headquartered right in Jerusalem. Every, the government will be there. Jesus will be there ruling. It's still to come. He's still going to be the king and Messiah that they were expecting just 2,000, 3,000 years later. Uh, just, a, just a short distance for God. But, you know, God says this child is to be born in Bethlehem. That's what I said. And we're going to allow this to happen. So what happens? God moves on Tiberius' heart, who's not a Christian, not a Jew, not a follower of God, to call a tax. Now, God can do what he wants with people that aren't even his followers. Now, did Tiberius understand that he was doing God's will? No. He didn't acknowledge the God of Israel at all. He followed Zeus and, and Diocletius and uh, you know, all those other gods of the Romans. Now, he wasn't thinking at all about, I'm, I'm being moved by the God of Israel. But God moved on his heart to put a tax together. And his tax wasn't just pay your taxes like most of the taxes were. He goes, I want you all to go back to your home towns to pay your taxes. Now, we think about this, you know, in Roman days, people moved around a lot more than we even realize. The Romans built magnificent road system, most of many of which are still in existence and some of which are even being used today in, in Europe and, and the Middle East. They built a road system that you could get all the way from India all the way up to, to up uh, by in France by England. England has Roman roads in it. You know, you get all the way to to Spain, you could travel all across the north of Africa. They built a road system that you could travel by. And you know what? When people found that there was a road system they could travel by, they did an amazing thing. They traveled. <laughs> you know, kind of like even in America, but about 100 years ago or so, people pretty much stayed within their little communities because you would have a dirt road to get to the next nearest town. As soon as we started making paved roads and interstates and everything, an amazing phenomenon happened in America. People started traveling. And it was true even in Rome. The, the Romans' times, people traveled. God knew what he was doing when he brought the Messiah in at the Roman days because travel was easy. What other benefit was there at that time? People pretty much spoke the same language. Now, in your towns, you spoke whatever language was local, but you spoke Greek, and if you were really high up dealing with the Romans, you learned to speak Latin. But everybody in that area spoke Greek. So the language was common from all the way, again, all the way in Europe, all the way to India, spoke Greek. God came at a time when the gospel could be preached with ease. Now, this is something wonderful, and he says, okay, Mary and Joseph, we're going we're gonna to put you in Bethlehem where I want you. And again, we think about this, traveling, nine months pregnant. I remember taking short trips with my wife on a couple of the pregnancies when she was 
eight, nine months pregnant, and it was not much fun. Uh, you know, having to stop every every 15, 20 minutes uh, just so she go to the restroom uh, and stretch her legs, and and you know they're making a trip that's going to take seven days or more to get to Bethlehem. Why? Because God said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And you know, if she had really known what was going on, I could picture this. Well, you know, Joseph, uh, this baby's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I'm getting a little heavy with child. Uh, maybe we should go to Bethlehem, you know, and get, get there before it's too hard. This is why I say I don't really under think that she understood that she had the Messiah that she was going to give birth to cause, or didn't understand where the Messiah had to be born. And so we see this God making a move on them to send them to Bethlehem. And then they get to Bethlehem and try to check in at the local inn. Now, when we talk about inns, we think of maybe a motel, you know, a motel with a room and a bed and a, and a little bathroom area. Uh, maybe we think of a hotel. Inns in those days were a very large room where everybody slept in the large room. At the end, in the morning, everybody picked up their, their matting and they put down tables so that you could have your meal. And there wasn't a lot of cleaning in between the two either, so it wasn't a very clean place to be staying. This was an inn. Okay. Now, most towns would have maybe one inn if it was a inn, if it was a small town, maybe two or three if it was a big town. Well, Bethlehem is a small town. Probably only had one inn. Usually, when you went to travel, you stayed with family. But the taxing time was coming along, and Joseph gets there with Mary, and whatever family he had there probably had other family members in that, in that house. And they were offered room in the stable. Now, picture this. The king of the universe, the god of the universe, born in a stable. Definitely not what we would have in plan, would it? If we were making the plans, uh, God, you know, oh, we're going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be born in the palace. We're kicking, kicking Herod out of, the, out of the palace, and he's going to take over the palace and have the best of everything. And God says, no, I want him to be born as humbly as possible. Born in a stable. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a barn or a stable. Uh, they don't usually smell good. Uh, in Proverbs, uh, Solomon said that, the barn and the stable only smell good when there's no animals in it. <laughs> this was not a barn or a stable with no animals in it. <laughs> All right. Mary is sent there to give birth to Jesus in a, in a barn, stable. Most people even believe that it was a cave in the, in the, back, of the back of the place that the animals stayed in. Can you imagine Mary... 13, 14, maybe 15 years old max in a strange town where she doesn't know, doesn't have mom to help her give birth and this baby starts to come. Joseph's probably absolutely worthless as a, as a midwife. You know, most men would be if they haven't had any training. You know, it's possible that the innkeeper would have sent for the local midwife to be with her. We do know that she had one experience though. She had been with Elizabeth. When she was announced that she was pregnant, she went to stay with Elizabeth three months. Elizabeth was nine, uh, six months pregnant when she went. She probably was present 
when Elizabeth gave birth. So that she had at least one experience. Again, a miracle of God? You know, probably. Let's give you experience on what you're, what you're there because you're not going to have family. Because in those days, you called your family. You know, your mom came, your mother-in-law came, whoever, your sisters, you would have help. Midwives would come. She's in a strange town. No family. Can you imagine giving birth with no family around? No medical <laughs> technicians around. You know, I know there was a period in time where it was only medical technicians. You couldn't even have your family. Now we're going back to family being involved. You know, when my kids were all born, I was in the, in the room, everyone, all four of them. You know, I actually got to take my daughter out. <laughs> the doctor got paid and I did the work. <laughs> but you know, we were switching back to this idea of family being involved. For a long time in our country, in our world, we didn't have family involved. It was just nobody there. This was a time when it's supposed to be family. She doesn't have family. She might have Joseph. If Joseph wasn't around trying to find a midwife or, or whatever else help it was. But she gave birth to Jesus in a smelly, dark stable with no family. Why? I really believe that God wanted to be born in such a way that says, I know what it means to be the lowest of the low. You don't, I don't want to be given birth to where everything is going to be perfect and everything is going to be great. I want you to know that no matter where you are in your life, I know what it's like to be there. And this is important. If God had been born in a, in a palace or a mansion with a silver spoon in his mouth, the poor would go, yeah, you don't know what it's like to be poor. He was born with nothing. Not even family to celebrate his birth at that particular point in time. We know that afterwards they left the stable and they went to some kind of house in Bethlehem, probably some place that they rented or family that Joseph had because he went to his home. And we know that they're going to spend some time there. When the wise men come, and, I, and I've shared this with you, I hate to ruin our nativity pictures, but the wise men came sometime after his birth because it says they found him at the home that he was staying in and they called him a young child, a toddler most likely. And the wise men said that they had been on the, you know, they saw his star two years earlier because that's what they told Herod, which is why Herod killed all the children two years, <coughs> two years and younger. They met Jesus. So they didn't stay in that stable. Don't get this picture. They stayed in that stable for a long time. They might have gone to Bethlehem just so late it wasn't, you know, you know, even if you know family, you don't usually go knocking on your family's door at 11, 12 o'clock at night unless you really know your family. You know, if I was going to my mom or dad's house, I could go to their house at you know, 1 o'clock in the morning. Would not, you know, uh, but even then, I probably wouldn't. But you know, they may have just gotten into Bethlehem so late, they're going, it's too late to go knock on the door of the family. So we're going to try to stay at the inn. And then next morning, they wrap up the baby and, and go to his family. We don't know on that, but we do know that they go to a home and spend time in that home. You know, but you know, the main point of this is what will God do to get us to do what he wants us, wants us to do? You know, how many of us have had circumstances in our life that got us in just the right place for us to witness to somebody or do something and it was not what we had planned on doing? You know, I've had several of those in my lifetime. You know, some of them aren't really that big a deal. 
you know, one of them recently was my wife just begged me to take her to the doctors in the middle of the day, and I'm going, I really don't want to take you to the doctor. You know, it's, you've got your own car, but I took her to the doctor and ended up ministering to somebody and giving the gospel to somebody. You know, what did God do? He used my wife to get me where he wanted me to be able to talk to that person. You know, or, you know, I've had a couple times when my car is broken down just so I could be able to talk to the right person at the right time. Uh, you know, what will God do to get us where he wants us to be. You know, the thing we've got to remember is God is sovereign. He is in complete control. He knows exactly what it is he's going to do. He knows exactly what he's going to accomplish. And he makes sure that it happens. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, was driving, driving, riding up the road to Damascus. And God says, okay, Saul, I have a new, new plan for you. Shows up as a bright white light, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and says, okay, now I want you to be my disciple. And I've said many times, you know, he could have very easily told God, no, I'm not going to do it. And I've said beyond that, nobody in their right mind would have taken that stance. You know, you've just been knocked off your horse, you've been blinded, and God himself is speaking it to you. You're going to do what he's told you to do. Well, we read some of these biographies about great Christian leaders and we watch how slow they started. All the, anybody who does anything great starts out small. You know, if you, no matter who you look at, unless it's somebody who is given their money by their parents you know, in a business you know, and they don't even know how to run the business, they usually run it in the ground because they don't know what it means to run a business. But you know, many millionaires have been broke and bankrupt four or five times before they get their last million dollars. They learned the hard way how to handle it. You know, God does things with us. He teaches us. You know, we, we think about uh, Gladys Awold, a- a- I think is how I pronounce her name. But you know, She was a missionary to, to China. She knew she was called to be a missionary to China, and she, and she waited until she was too old by their standards. I think she was 27. <laughs> and they go, you're too old to be a missionary to, to China. You can't learn the language. You can't learn their customs, you know, because we put you through a 10-year school. You know, so you're going to be in your 30s before you even can get there. So she decided she was going to get there on her own. <laughs> she took a, took a boat across from England, got on a train to go to China, got most of the way across to, uh, Russia, and ran into a war. <laughs> the train wouldn't take her anymore. She decided she was going to walk to China from Siberia. Got shanghaied by a, Roman, by a Russian group and said, you know, you're now, you're now going to work in the factory. She finally got escaped out of that. Got to where she was going and the person she was supposed to meet wasn't there. Most of us, have, when we got to the war front, would have said, I'm turning back. Okay. Once, once we got away from being shanghaied at this vill- you know, village to be working in the factory, got out of that, we'd go, I'm going back home. This is, and she kept going. She got to the place where she was supposed to be this person. She's not there. How many of us would keep going forward to meet God's call or would we turn around? Most of us will never do anything great for God because we turn around at the first, second, third problem that we run into. And we just kind of turn our back and say, okay, God, I guess it wasn't, I guess this wasn't for me. You're shutting all the doors. When you are called by God to do something, persevere to do it. 
get it done? Joseph and Mary not going to Bethlehem when they probably should have. God made sure they went to Bethlehem. Anybody who's done anything great for God has got the same testimony in their pocket of persevering beyond the hard times. We need to decide, are we going to follow God or not? I tell people at the prison all the time, following God is not for wimps. You know, that's the accusation of the world. You know, you just following God so that you don't have to do anything. You don't understand what following God's all about, do you? Just to make a godly stand on a situation means you have to have, to have some bravery and courage because you're going to be the target of attacks. Okay? When you say that God calls things sin and the world's saying it's okay. You know, we have all kinds of things that the world calls okay. How about living together outside of bonds of marriage? That's fornication in the Bible and God says it's a sin. And all across this country and all across this world, we have people living together, including many, unfortunately, Christians living together in what God calls sin because the world says it's okay because they don't have the courage to stand for God and do things the right way. Now, we've got all kinds of issues out there that we want to be able to look at and say, God, what do you want me to do? And the world's going to look at you and say, you're, you're awfully weird believing that old-fashioned stuff. Why don't, why don't you get with it? Why don't you get into the 21st century? You're believing that stuff from the Dark Ages. Well, my Bible hasn't been rewritten on, the, on what God calls sin. Now, it's been modernized and everything, but you know, a good version of the Bible still calls sin, sin. Now, there are bad versions of the Bible out there where they're trying to change those words. They're no longer Bible. They're no longer Scripture. God calls sin, sin. He calls us to be his servants, and that sometimes means we're going to have to do things that are unpopular with the world. And you know, one of the problems even then is sometimes it's your own Christian family that gives you a hard time about following God. We look at the book of Job, and Job loses everything except for his wife, and his wife comes along and says, Job, curse God and die. Now, we like to, people like to make fun of her, but you know, I have heard families talk their children out of becoming missionaries because they didn't want them to suffer and go leave this country and go through. They wanted missionaries. <laughs> you know, well, we, want, we, want, we want missionaries to go over the world, but not our own kids. We should encourage them. Sometimes I want to tell you they want to be a pastor or a missionary. Encourage them. Really encourage them. Give them that help in that direction. Because it is so hard just to fill those positions anyway. And then when your family and friends are all telling you, why would you want to do that? You could stay here and make all kinds of money. You know, one of the key things we look at in these biographies, many of these guys gave up fortunes. We had C.T. Studd who gave up a career and, and great, great wealth to go be a missionary to China. We had different people that have done this. They've turned their back on great, great rewards on this world to serve God. Why? Because they look to heaven. Now, Paul said that his light afflictions, afflictions of this world are nothing compared to the weight of the glory. You know, and we've talked about this. You know, Paul's light afflictions, you know, they were pretty minor. You know, he'd just been beaten with a cat of nine tails uh, three times. He'd been shipwrecked several times. He'd been thrown, in, thrown into dungeons, chased out of towns. 
you know, beat to within an inch of his life, stoned one time, left for dead. Just light afflictions, he called them. <laughs> yeah. Just nothing, no, no big deal. Why? Because he was looking at eternity. When we focus on this world, things can seem good and bad. How many times are you, you're up one moment because everything looks good, and the next moment you're down because everything's looking bad, and maybe even the next moment some good news comes along and you're back on the top of everything? This world is up and down all the time, and if we're looking at this world, we will never have joy, we will never have peace, we will never have comfort. If our eyes are focused on eternity and on God, we can walk through the problems of this world. Well, it doesn't mean we won't notice them. Believe me, I know you know it. We all notice the problems. I'm sure Paul even noticed the shipwrecks and the beatings and everything. But, you know, when they went to Philippi, Barnabas and Paul had been beaten. Their flesh is all bloody. And what do we find them doing in the dark dungeon? Singing praises to God. Now, I'm absolutely sure every one of us in this room, our first instinct would be to sing praises after we've been beaten up, wouldn't it? God, thank you. I'm going to sing praises to you. <laughs> At midnight, they're singing praises, probably driving the other prisoners crazy. Because <laughs> I don't know how good of voices they had. <laughs> but you know, why could they do that? Because their eyes were focused on God, saying, God, you're going to reward this. You're going to help us. Is it hard, really, to stand for God in this world if our eyes are focused right? Absolutely not. If I'm looking at serving him and being his and spending eternity with him, you get to the place where, what does the world think of me? It doesn't matter. It's what does God think about me? But you know, in the flesh, it takes great courage and great power to follow God. So I want us to encourage us. God's going to get us there one way or the other. <laughs> you know, he does. He is going to get you to do what he wants you to do. You can either fight him tooth and nail be drugged there at nine months pregnant instead of going there at six or seven months pregnant, which you probably should have done. Uh, or you can just say, God, I'm ready to do what you want me to do. It's our decision. Are we going to stand for God? Are we going to be men and women of God, or are we going to be wimps for the world? Now, and this is something that's important for us. There are a lot of people who don't want, they want a wishy-washy Christianity I show up on Sunday, I hear the pastor get on me about different things, and I go home and I don't have to come back again for a week. You know, unfortunately, that's a lot of people's Christianity. Come to church Sunday morning, listen to the pastor, tell me all the bad things I've done and, and how I should be better and, and go back out again. My challenge for us is we need to be reading our Bible every day. We need to be praying. We need to be sharing with them. We need to be taking stances that God has asked us to take and be willing to die if necessary for those stances because he's the one that's given them. God has not changed his stance from the beginning. All right? From day one of creation, he has not changed who he is. And as a matter of fact, he hasn't changed who he was for all of eternity past. So go back as far back as you can imagine, and he hasn't changed. Sometimes I'm asked, well, why does God in the Old Testament seem so angry and vicious, and in the New Testament so kind and everything? Well, I can show you all kinds of experiences in the Old Testament where God was gracious and loving and, and, and kind. And I can show you Old Testament, New Testament scriptures where God is pretty angry and judges people. God has not changed. He wants us to follow him and stand on him and his word. We have to make a decision to follow him. And it is not for wimps. It is not for the, the, you know, the, the timid. 
It means sometimes having to give our lives. Yeah. And we've been very fortunate in, in America for the last 200 and some years to not have to suffer for God. But you know, there's many places in this world that if you become a Christian, there's places in this world if you become a Christian, your life expectancy is less than six months once you become a Christian. And they still keep becoming Christians because they know what it means to stand for God. There's coming a time when we're going to have to stand for God, and it might cost us. It might cost us prison. It might cost us our life. It's changing. Our world is changing. If you get online, you look at these little comments, and anything somebody says as a Christian, you read all this long list of people who just attack them. You know, attack them with words. It won't be long before those words become actions. Get ready to decide what are you going to do for God. Are you going to make the choice to live for God no matter what? Or are you going to just play games with God and say, God, I'm yours until problems happen? In America, we've got a lot of people that are gods until problems happen. And frankly, most of them aren't even gods. They just say they are. What decisions are you going to make? When God shows you something in the Word, are you really ready to jump up and say, God, I'm ready to do what you want me to do? I mentioned Paul, you know, he, had, he was blinded and God sent him Ananias to go talk to him. And Ananias' first answer was, God, are you, basically he said, God, are you nuts? This man wants to put us in jail. He goes, but it seems like you've told me I will, go, I will go talk to him. Can you imagine the trepidation that he went to talk to Saul when he went to him? All right, here's a guy who's ready to put me in jail and kill me. You know, and he calls him, Brother Saul, God has sent me. Prays for him, heals him, teaches him. Has God ever asked you to do something that is so scary you're just sure that the end of the world is coming to obey? Haven't gone quite that far. There's been some scary situations God's put me in, but nothing quite where I thought my life was totally at bay. But you know, God may ask us that. Saying, are you willing to serve me no matter what? I, last thing I want to say, you know, when I was young as a teenager, I used to tell people, you know, they're going, well, you keep talking about God and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. And I'm going, oh, good, thank you. I'll send you to heaven. You know, you, the way I've always looked at it, if somebody kills me, they've done me a great favor. They've sent me straight to heaven. The bad news is that they almost kill me. <laughs> then I have to suffer. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what are we willing? Where are our eyes focused? Are we looking to God and what he's got in store for us? Are we looking at this world? And there is nothing of value in this world long term. Nothing. You know, we look at these people who get millions of dollars. They get great fame. And they're empty. How do we know they're empty? Well, read their stories. They're hooked on drugs and alcohol and, and end up eventually blowing their brains out or t- overdosing on drugs because they just aren't happy. They have the best that the world can give them and realize the best the world can give you is nothing. And I've talked to some people in this room and I know that some of you have the same type of stories. I thought, I thought everything was going good and then I found God. And then I found out what joy and peace was about. Most of us in this room probably will never be multimillionaires or billionaires. You know? Maybe God would bless us if, we're, if we can handle his money real well. Most of us will never have great fame. But you know what? I'm looking to heaven. Who knows what kind of fame we have in heaven? 
Because God's going to show us things that we're not even aware of that we've done. The people we've just said a little word to. The cup of water we give out. God, you know, Jesus said, you know, you'll be rewarded for the cup of water that you give out. You know, where are we with God? I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and having God say, this is what you did, this is what you did. You know, I hope that I've prayed and asked God to cover all the things that are bad so I never have to hear about them again. I try to keep my sins repented of and under the blood. I'm sure there'll be a few things that God says, oh, you did that, you did that, but here's your rewards. When we stand as Christians, we will stand at the Bema Seat of Christ, and the whole purpose of the Bema Seat of Christ is for him to give us rewards. He'll burn up everything that's bad, but his whole purpose is that he wants to have something to give us. Maybe it's only one diamond. Maybe it's only one nugget of gold. For some of us, it might be a whole trove of, trove of things. But you know, much of it's going to burn up. Much of our life is going to burn up. But no matter who we are, much of our life will burn up because there's so much that we do in ourselves. What are you, what are you, where do you stand with God? What are you willing to share with him? Are you willing to take a stand with him? First thing is become a Christian, which most of the people I've talked in here say they're Christians, so I'm not going to go too heavily in that. But to become a Christian, we admit we're a sinner. We confess that we, that we deserve punishment, that Jesus died for our sins, and ask him to come into our life and be our Lord. But beyond that, for everybody else in this room, or most of the people in this room, I'm saying, what are you going to let God do for you? How are you going to let God use you? Most of us need to open our mouth more to share, share with people about who God is. And you know, I know that can be scary. It can be very scary to just open your mouth. But you know, we are called to be witnesses. A witness tells what they know, not what they don't know. If you've ever gone to court as a witness, nobody's asking you to tell what happened 30 minutes before that person you know, committed the crime, you know, what, what that person was doing 30 minutes before the crime happened. They want you to know, to testify what happened when you were witnessing the crime. We're witnesses for God. He came into your life, you have a story to tell. How did God change your life? What has he done in your life? How has he changed you? Tell people what you know about God. They can't argue with it. They may tell you they don't believe it. But they cannot tell you that what you experienced was not true. You experienced it. If you don't have a story to tell about God, then you need to look back and say, God, do I, are you in me? And is there a story for me to tell? I got saved and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because God changed my life. He made some big changes immediately, but he's been making other changes for over 40 years. And those changes have been some big changes too, but you know, he made some really big changes. Even when I was 10 years old, I knew that I was a Christian because of the changes he made in my life. He came in and dwelled my life and he's made big changes since then. What is your story for God? How is he changing your life? If he's not changing your life, you need to look and say, God, do I know you? Because he says we are new creations in Christ. He wants to fill us with himself, and he wants to change who we are to be more like him. So if you don't have changes in your life, then you need to really look and say, God, am I yours? If you are his, look at those changes. Start telling people about them. Let people know about what changes. You know, I love just listening to people telling me what changes has happened in the last year to two years of their life and how God is working on them and changing them. And being able to look at people and saying, 
wow, that person is so different today than they were five years ago, six years ago. Can't go back beyond six years. I've only been here six years. <laughs> but uh, you know, see the life changes for people in six years. Their love for God, the way he controls their life. And say, God, that person is yours. I can tell. You can see the difference. But look at your life and say, God, where am I with you? Am I different? We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are and that you have a plan for every one of us. And that you will make sure those plans happen. Lord, we lift up everybody in this room. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, we ask that today they decide that they're going to get to know you and they'll come up and talk to me at the end of service. Lord, for everybody else in this room, Lord, I ask you to challenge their heart to take stands for you and realize that they are men and women of God that need to stand up for you and make, cha make changes that others can see and open their mouths to share. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.